Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. You're listening to Mackie and Judd from the TCL Studios. TCL, America's fastest growing TV brand. Now launching. Mackie and Judd. We get things rolling with the opening bell. Want to ring the bell? The third straight turnover by Minnesota. Paul. Robert Covington comes in, says, give me that basketball. Another excellent contest by Andrew Wiggins. Wiggins off the cross-court feed from Covington, drills the triple, and Mike D'Antoni needs a timeout. We already knew what you know our, our game plan was that you know we had to fix you know before we even came in we was talking about it you know they got a lot of you know transition threes they had more you know, rebounds than us and also Capella was having you know, too good of a game and we had to shut that down he was running you know they was finding him in transition so you know we talked about that and then you know our coverages and everything we was a lot better in the second half. All right, Danny Cunningham. Hello, Judd. You are going to... Hello, Danny. You are going to cover the Wolves game tonight against Charlotte at Target Center, concluding what I believe is a four-game homestand. Ten home games in a 12-game stretch. So we talked about this game. We talked about the impressive comeback win over Houston yesterday extensively. Correct. But what we didn't get into a whole lot, and what I think is very interesting, is... The fact that they trailed by 19 at one point, they trailed by 14 at the half. Only because Andrew Wiggins banked in a 35-footer at the buzzer, no less. And yet they came back to win that game and dominate in the second half based largely or at least partially, very importantly, on what transpired at halftime. And it sounds like it happened without the coach there. It sounds like the players got together and some of them who take a leadership role played a very important part in saying this is going to change in the second half. Not something very typical of our Timberwolves. There is a definite sense of accountability in that locker room, and that's not something that's existed. And I think that there are two moments that have happened in the last week that we can maybe look back on in April or potentially May as turning points for this team. Don't get ahead of yourself. Just I said potentially. I, I know. As, as we're writing our and season you know what, May, reviews. May in the NBA is still... Okay, go ahead. Sorry. So My bad. That win against the Spurs, where they won by 30 points, that's going to be a night that I think we look back on as either the night we realize that this team is legit or the night that it was the highlight of the honeymoon period that we might still be in. I don't know. Mm-hmm. And then the win against Houston is something we're also going to look back on because that halftime meeting and the way they played defense in the second half, it wasn't just that they played bad in the first half against Houston. It's that it was compounded with a bad game against Boston two nights before. Saturday night, they played four bad quarters against the Celtics for the Mm -hmm. most part. They played two bad quarters against Houston 
and something was said in that locker room at halftime and it turned around because we saw an entirely different team. We saw the team that we had been seeing throughout this quote-unquote honeymoon period that they've been in. Give me your uh, dime store theory about who probably led this whole thing and who, because this is this is what we thought Jimmy Butler was going to do. When they traded for Jimmy Butler, mm-hmm. mistakenly, we thought that Jimmy Butler was going to be the one to, for instance, walk in during what was turning into a blowout at halftime and say, this is going to end now and here's why. So give me your theory about who took the ownership and took the responsibility or which players did to reverse this trend and say, we're going to go out there, we're going to change how we play, certainly defensively, and we are not going to get embarrassed by what is not a great Houston team, but still a good team. So you have to, if you're a fan, you have to hope that it was either Carl Anthony Towns or Robert Covington, and it very well could have been one or both of those. We don't have the information of... Who was the who was the first one to speak up when they got in the locker room? And maybe it was a group effort, and maybe there was no like uh, silence in the room, and one person finally said something. We don't know. I mean, none of us were in there. It's not as if I could be a fly on the wall as much as I would like to. But be. But you probably got theories about it. Sure. Oh, I absolutely have theories. Another Derrick Rose is a guy that could lead it because he's someone that has been more vocal. He's a vet. Taj Gibson is another one. And then I think Luol Deng could be a possibility, too. Now, before people start laughing, explain this. Because it's, an, guys it's like, interesting. Guys like Luol Deng matter to this to these types of teams so much more than the common fan realizes. A lot of common fans will just think, oh, he's just he's wasting a roster spot. He never gets off the bench. He can't play anymore. All he's doing is collecting a check and being on the bench. That was my initial thought when they when they signed him. I was like, what is Tibbs doing? This is just he's just bringing in another Bulls guy, but Please continue, yeah. Those guys that have been around the block before and know how to win and play the right way, as Luol Deng does, and obviously yeah. he's not a, a champion. He doesn't have a ring, I don't believe. But he's been deep in playoffs before. He's been part of really good teams before. He's been a part of not-so-good teams before, too. He knows what it takes. He's a guy, when he talks, your ears are going to perk up. You're going to listen. Even if he's not playing every night, he's a consummate professional, and he knows what it takes to get to where this team wants to be. Mm-hmm. So he's someone that absolutely has the cachet in that locker room to to speak up and to say, we need to do this better. You are not playing hard enough. You're not playing defense well enough. You're not doing all those things, and guys will listen to him. There are, are plenty of instances throughout NBA where that's happened. One of my favorite stories about it is James Jones, who is now the acting GM of the Phoenix Suns. He was a LeBron guy, similar to the way that Luol is a Tibbs guy. James Jones was a LeBron guy. Was in Miami. He was a good player in Miami in his prime. He was never a star or anything, but he was a quality role player. Mm-hmm. He won two titles in Miami with LeBron. When LeBron left Miami, went to Cleveland. James Jones was actually the first guy they acquired the Cavs. They acquired James Jones before Kevin Love, technically. Um, after LeBron signed. James Jones was not part of the plan as to they're going to win because James Jones is going to contribute on the floor. He was a locker room guy. When the Cavs and Warriors were playing Game 7, Teron Lue, who was the head coach of the Cavs at the time, he kind of lit into LeBron at halftime in the locker room in Oracle Arena in San Francisco, or Oakland. And uh, LeBron didn't take too well to it. And this story, it's it's pretty well chronicled in The Return of the King, written by Dave McMenamin and Brian Winhurst, which is an excellent book if you're a LeBron fan and want to read about it. I absolutely recommend it. Um, LeBron didn't take too well to that. 
And James Jones was someone he was really close with and someone that was very, very well respected in the locker room. And LeBron kind of looked at him and rolled his eyes and goes, can, can you believe this bleep? And James Jones looked right back at him and goes, is he wrong? Yeah. And that kind of snapped LeBron into thinking, okay, maybe I do need to do more. Maybe I need to figure this out somehow, some way. And then we obviously all know the rest of the story. And I'm not saying the wall Dang's going to do that because this Wolves team is not near the level of that Cavs team. And, and they're not a finals team right now. Let's, they're just, they're not a championship contender. But those moments still happen. No, but they are playing now. The, the the team that we are seeing now is the team that I think we thought we we would get with Butler here. Sure, and and it's not that doesn't make them a great team. But you know what? They're competitive. They are likable. Very. They play hard. They play defense. It, it is interesting from what you're saying. It's very intriguing to me that Tibbs actually has gotten some of his guys here, and it's working. Luol. Derek Rose well, for Derek sure. Derek has reinvented himself. But but what's so Taj has been good. Yeah, but Taj what, is another a lot. These guys, aside from being Tibbs guys, Luol obviously can't play anymore. Right. But but he's still doing something behind the scenes. He's helping all all of Tibbs's guys, other than Jimmy, which but that's what blew up in his face. Right. Have been awesome for this franchise. But what I now find to be so intriguing is is how bad the read on Jimmy turned out to be. Because if all if all Tibbs's reads were bad, you'd be like, well, he just can't do it, right? But, but he's three yeah. out of four. But the, but the fourth one was a complete disaster. Although it turned into Robert Covington. Well, no, but I'm saying, but for what we thought, what we the thought, yeah, I, I, I realized that end up backfiring. He yes. was going to be the. We thought he was going to be the conduit between Tibbs and Towns and Wiggins, and instead he sort of just joined Tibbs in in mocking those guys, and it didn't work. Yes, but. With Luol and with Derek Rose and with Taj, you are seeing that there is some that this is working to the extent that those guys are doing a good job of clearly delivering a message that Tibbs doesn't have to. Then mm-hmm. exactly, and you need that. You need that on a team. And Derek is someone that earlier in his career was maybe not as well connected with his teammates and and a quiet guy and a quote unquote lead by example type of player. But he's not that anymore. He he is probably the most beloved guy in that locker room. I have not asked one person inside that locker room about Derrick Rose and not gotten anything but glowing remarks. Ding, ding. This cut back and Sargent scores! Deflected on the way through! What's this? Just wait. Why am, why am I in here for this? Just wait. Patient, young man. Teenager Josh Sargent, 1-0 to the USA. Now... It's time for Jonathan Harrison to vent on U.S. men's soccer. All right, Jonathan Harrison. All right. Go right ahead. The okay. floor is yours. So yesterday, U.S. men's national team officially introduced Greg, Bear, or Greg Bearhalter as their new manager. For the first time in 417 days, we actually have a manager of the men's national team. Why it took that long, I have no idea. Carlos Cordero was named the new U.S. soccer president 278 days ago. And as Danny once told me, back then, kids were still eating Tide Pods. Ernie Stewart was named the general manager of the U.S. men's national team on August 1st. Jimmy Butler hadn't gone public with his trade demands yet. And we still didn't have a coach then. We only got a coach er, for the first time yesterday, which is just absurd to think about. Greg Berhalter is a good hire. Don't get me wrong. He's going to be great for the U.S. men's national team, I think. Only him and Oscar Pereira, Pereira 
were actually interviewed for the role. They had 417 days to interview someone for this job, and they only interviewed two guys for it. The names not interviewed is an extensive list, and it's embarrassing that they didn't interview any of these guys. Tata Martino, the guy who only coached the greatest player ever in Lionel Messi at two spots, Barcelona and Argentina. And as Atlanta United in the MLS Cup this weekend, in just their second season as a franchise. Peter Vermees, one of the best organizations in MLS. He's the head coach of Kansas, Sporting Kansas City. He, they have a great line from the youth team to the senior team. It's, it's embarrassing that they didn't even interview him. Jesse Marsh, he helped the New York Red Bulls to first place in the East three of the past four seasons before leaving for Germany. He'll be a head coach in Europe at some point in the next couple years. Nope, not interviewed. Juan Carlos Osorio managed Mexico for the past four years. Oh, Mexico only finished second in their group in the latest World Cup. A group that featured Germany, the reigning world champs, a team that they beat 1-0. And then Julian Lapetegui, or Lapetegui, however the hell you say it. Doesn't matter. Went undefeated in two years as Spain's national team manager, yet he couldn't even get an interview. He called and said, hey guys, uh, I see you guys got a job that's been open for 400 (laughs) days. How about you interview me? Now we're good. We're too far along in our process. In their introductory press conference yesterday, GM Ernie Stewart said he didn't need to interview some of the people because he sees what they're doing on the playground every day with their teams. Whatever the hell that means, that's a terrible interview process, and that deserves to be ridiculed. Greg Berhalter, I'm sorry you have to be saddled with this as your process that got you the job, but U.S. men's national team, or the U.S. soccer, deserves some criticism for this process. So what you're telling me... Is the entire time that as a society we were eating Tide Pods, the U.S. men's national team didn't have a coach? Yes, and that's embarrassing. Why did we start? 17 days. 400, that's over a year since we got beat by something called Trinidad and Tobago and got knocked out of the World Cup. It was that long ago? Yes. Wow. Feels like yesterday. I was still part-time then. That puts it all in context. Thank you. 417 days ago, I might have still been living in Ohio. <laughs> I, well, lived, I lived in Wisconsin, in Wisconsin for a year. Why did we eat Thai pods? I don't have a good answer I, for that. I, I never ate Thai pods. You guys know? Nope. I mean, I'm too old to uh, have done. It, it's the Gen Z. Near. The it's generation a, after me. I don't know. Did, did you get a high? Do people get, I shouldn't say you, you didn't do yeah. it, but did you Couldn't get a high you. from them? What, like, I, what's think, the, I think you just You went clean. to the hospital for it. That's what happened. <laughs> I think you just get cleaned. Thank you, Danny. TCL Broadcast Studios, Mackie and Judd. Mackie's going to join at 4 o'clock. And next we talk wild. Brian Murphy, Pioneer Press in Calgary, joins us. Sit tight. The Mackie and Judd show will continue in a moment. Do I have your word on that, sir? Mackie and Judd. Absolutely. On 1500 ESPN. Mackie and Judd are back. I have indeed been uploaded, sir. We're online and ready. On 1500 ESPN. All right, quick check on your traffic here in the TCL Broadcast Studios. 94 eastbound, we got a crash between, uh, uh, actually it's near 394 uh, Minneapolis. It's causing a few minutes, a few extra minutes to your commute. Judd? Thank you, Manny Hill. Let's uh, transition now from the Timberwolves and Jonathan Soccer rant to this. Over to Granlin. And now Zucker scores! No doubt about that one. Jason Zucker on the one-timer. Minnesota's three for three on the power play in the wild lead three to two. I think it was an important game for him because it could have went south when the first shot in net goes in. You know, everybody's looking to the stars and um, 
and it, but he hung in there and, and it, mental toughness tonight for him, I think, uh, battled his way through. Trying to track down Brian Murphy of the Pioneer Press right now who covered the uh, Vancouver Wild game last night. The Wild now in Calgary. They're going to play Calgary on Thursday night and Edmonton on Friday night. That, of course, was Bruce Boudreaux talking about the play of Devin Dubnik. And let's start there because last night's game... Uh, the, the Wild fell behind again. In fact, they play with fire a lot. They do what hockey people like to call chasing the game, which is not a great idea. They have now won, however, 10 games, which is the best in the National Hockey League, after giving up the first goal. Devin Dubnik, though, was the key guy, or among the key guys last night. He was 1-5 in, in a seven-game stretch going into last night, a 384 goals against average, and an 856 save percentage. And there was a lot of question the past couple of weeks about his play. The third period meltdowns were becoming far too routine. And to be clear, this was not all on Dubnik. Dubnik was struggling. Dubnik was play, not playing great. I actually pushed for quite a while now for Alex Daylock to play a little bit more. But Devin Dubnik was not totally at fault, but he was certainly playing a role. And in the third period last night, he did not, did not give up a goal. He played fantastic. And so his play last night was absolutely key, as was this guy. This is Bruce Boudreaux talking about uh, Jordan Greenway, the rookie forward, who I think has the potential to be a great power forward, but he's definitely a developing player right now. He was the best player on the ice uh, for both teams, I thought. Uh, and if he can continue to play, that's two games in a row. I thought he's been a, a, a man amongst boys. And if he can continue to do that, A, he's going to get a lot more points. I mean, he could have had three or four himself tonight, and, and that's the reason he was on the ice at the end of the game, because of, of the way he worked during his body of work during the course of the game. So, Murph, let's start there. Jordan Greenway is a guy who I think can be an absolute star eventually, but his play last night, if he plays up to his capabilities now, I think he gives this team the potential of a power forward presence like we thought for a long time that Charlie Coyle was going to be, and he's not. But I think Greenway has the position to, or has the possibility to transition into what we once thought Charlie Coyle could become. Well, he's certainly got the height and the weight bona fides. And if you noticed, I mean, he didn't really factor on the score sheet, but there wasn't any time a Canuck player had the puck on his stick, Greenway was on top of him and usually t- body muscling him off of it. Um, both he and, um, you know, he's kind of assimilated pretty well on that fourth line with a role of, look, they, they just need to grind it out. They need to go to the net a little bit more and maybe create some more opportunities. But um, if they can just get a reliable you know, physical presence from him. Mm-hmm. Um, that's something this team just doesn't have a lot of. They're, you know, they're just they're just kind of a lot of, uh, you know, they just try to pinball around and they and they don't necessarily play the body as much as uh, some teams do, and certainly not back in the day. But Greenway's got, you know, what is he six five six six six? six. He's a huge six, kid, six, yeah. Two hundred and fifty some pounds. I mean, you put him on skates and he's uh, he's a monster. Yeah. Now, what what do you think about this, too? Because this statistic could be viewed in two different ways. The fact that they have have won uh, 10 games in which they have gi- given up the first goal. The, the first way and the positive way to view that is to say, well, that's great. They come back. It leads the league in, in uh, coming back to win games after being down one zip. That's fantastic. The other is what, what hockey people, as we know, like to call chasing the game. Do you think they're playing with fire there, or or is it not that dangerous in your mind? No, I think they're playing with fire because statistically, that's 
this is an anomaly. I mean, essentially, teams that score first, it's almost like leading after two periods. I mean, you're able to seize momentum, and then, like you said, you're not chasing the game anymore. The Wild, though, I give them a lot of credit because they, you know, they don't get that sort of mopey feeling that you've seen of them in the past, you know, when they fall behind, and then you can just feel the energy going out of them. Um, right now, they, they are building up some equity, um, for their confidence, because if they do give up the first goal or even the, sometimes the first two goals, they found a way to get back into games. But that's not something over the course of an 82-game season I don't think that'll maintain. I, yeah. I think, you know, the, statistically it's always been proven out teams that score first are tough to get. It's, it's tough in those games because you are, like you said, you're chasing the game. Um, it's something that they need to, they, they have addressed. They just haven't uh, been able to execute it that much, but at least down the road, you know, you know they're not going to be in a position where they're just going to fold up. Dubnik's play last night certainly seemed improved. It seemed markedly improved to me in the third period. There, uh, do do we sense that he is is turning a corner? Because, and I don't want to blame the struggles all on him. He gave up some bad goals, and and part of the the reason why I think you get concerned about him is he played so well and played so much at the start of the year when he single-handedly essentially held them in games. But what was the feeling after last night, and especially uh, the final period, where he did play really, really well? Well, he was pretty kind. I actually spent some time talking to him today here in Calgary, and I'm going to write about it for tomorrow. But, you know, he, he he's learned over the years that, you know, you're going to go through stretches where you're not seeing the puck well. You're going to go through stretches where you give up bad goals and even, you know, weird goals. If you look at the goals against Toronto, you got two pucks going in off of your defenseman, Nick Sealer. He ended up giving up, uh, I think, uh, four goals on 14 shots against Arizona, and that collapse. Yep. Um, he even admits, you know, it's getting harder and harder mentally to not get trapped in that here-we-go-again mentality. But he, he says it's as simple as just, you know, he checks things off every game, seeing the puck on the boards, following it along, making sure his feet are set, making sure he's not too deep in the net. He kind of goes through these these physical uh, ch- check this physical checklist just to, to to calm him down, and and he knows it's that's what works for him. So he's not going to stray from that too much, and he's not um, he's not there thinking, okay, I've lost four games, my last four starts, I got to go out and win this one. Mm-hmm. Most of us think that once in a while, especially in the playoffs, that he needs to go out and win a series. Well, in his mind. He's not going to go out there and win a game. He's going to go out there and give his team an opportunity to win the game. And in doing so, he, he instills confidence. And you can tell um, when Dubnik's going, the rest of the team feels very confident in front of him. Do you think he should play a little bit less? I think that's a good question. I, I think you're going to see them split up again, especially because Alex Stalock is playing really well. Yes. If he didn't have a viable backup goaltender, you'd probably want him playing 75 games. But they're going to, you know, they, they, they've been pretty consistent saying we're going to manage him to about 60, and you give about 15 or 20 starts to stay locked. I don't think he's tired out now. I think you've got to monitor that, though, because we've seen as they scramble to get into the playoffs in February and March, and they're riding Dubnik every night, he can be worn out going into the playoffs. That's the position the Wild should be able to put themselves into if they continue their winning ways, is that they might be able to manage, because they have a quality backup goaltender in Alex Stalock, manage Dubnik's minutes down the stretch to keep him fresh for the postseason. Right, because the Dubnik swoon ordinarily comes in around March, correct? The whole, the the whole sw- team swoon comes yeah, up exactly. when so, they're chasing points. So the, the point being is, is if Stalock played a little bit more now, 
I w- wonder if that would keep Dubnik a, a bit more fresh for uh, February and March. It would, but you know, I think Boudreaux's been very careful too because he's trying to manage Dubnik and any goaltender's fragile ego. He wants him to fight through the tough times. He doesn't want to make it easy for him to just, you know, we're going we're gonna to give you a night off so you can reset. No, you're going to go out there. In fact, that's why he didn't pull him um, in the game against um, who did they play? The Coyotes. The Coyotes. Arizona he, game. He, he wouldn't he pull him. him, and he did. He pulled him in against Ottawa with seven minutes left in a four-four tie. I mean, that was more of a momentum thing, but he pulled him then yep. in the third period. And I, he said he was, te- you know, he had thought about it against Arizona, but the reason he didn't was he wants him to be able to fight through these, these tough stretches, whether it's in a game, a period, um, or in the la- in this case, the last couple of weeks where he's he's been pretty shaky. Admittedly, he knows he's been shaky. In your opinion, who drives whom more crazy? Kickers to Zim, goaltenders to Bruce. I'm going to say kickers to Zim because the stakes always seem to be a hell of a lot higher than uh, than what Dubnik uh, is doing. But you know what's funny is that NHL coaches, there's a reason they have goaltending coaches. <laughs> Amen. Just different human beings. You know, Dubnik is a pretty laid back guy because he'll talk on game days. He doesn't uh, he doesn't have a ton of superstitions. He doesn't dig a moat in front of his locker and fill it with eggshells like Manny Fernandez used to do. But I, I do think that, you know, Bob Mason is the guy that can kind of handle his psyche. Bruce kind of just farms that out to, to Mason. I, I don't think Zim farms out his uh, uh, his management to Mike Prefer for, for his field goal kicker. I think he's just demanding that there be some kind of consistency there, and it just seems like wide left has become a hashtag for the Vikings. Yes. I I think the thing with Devin is this. I think for a goaltender, he's pretty sane, but I think the one thing that probably frustrates Bruce a little bit is my sense is if things start to turn a little bit south on Devin, he does pout. He does start to pout a little bit, and I think think the kid gloves have to go on fairly quickly, and Bruce strikes me as the type of guy who absolutely despises kid gloves. Well, he, you can almost hear him biting through his tongue as he's doing that, too. But um, I think it's Dubnik's body language, you can, all, you can read how he's playing pretty well. He wears everything on his sleeve. I mean, he's a big guy, six foot four, so the equipment just sort of hangs off of him. And, and if he's got that hangdog look, <laughs> yes. you can just tell that it's not going to be one of, his, uh, one of his better nights. And I think that rubs off on the team as well. I mean, they don't want to see their goaltender, A, looking not confident, or B, looking annoyed or C, looking unfocused, because that puts a lot more pressure on what they do with the puck. They don't have the confidence of the guy behind them to bail them out. So body language counts in goaltending, and sometimes his is the worst you can find. In fairness to this discussion as well, the the Wild starts the uh, Western Canadian road swing last night against Vancouver, but the Canucks are 1-10-2 in their past 13, really not playing well. They are now going to go play a Calgary team that on Tuesday night against Columbus just scored nine goals. Nine to six. I saw that. Now that's an old school shoot. That Murph. That's our. That's our era. That's nineteen eighty. That's Grant Fear and goal. That's the eighties. Yeah. I, lo- yeah. I love that hockey. But this is that's, going to be the, different. That's the old Smite Division uh, run and gun Flames and uh, Oilers. Grant Fear um, and who? Who in goal for Calgary? Mike Vernon back Mike in the day. Vernon. Yeah, it would have been Mike Vernon. Reggie Lemelin. Reggie Lemelin. Reggie Lemelin with the big pads. But how, how much diff- How much more difficult? Does the assignment get now going from a struggling Canucks team to a Calgary team that scored nine goals and then going to Connor McDavid on Friday night? Yeah, well, McDavid's back now, so the big challenge in Edmonton is going to be not only facing him again, but going the second night of back-to-backs as well. So they're going to be a little bit gassed. You might see Stalock in that game if Bruce 
stays with his uh, typical goaltender rotation. Um, you know, I, I don't. You know, the, Calgary's got to feel pretty good about themselves putting nine goals up there. But I, I, I you, that's got to be an anomaly. I don't think you're going to see too many more nine-six games in this league. It's certainly not going to. You know, the Wild are not really. The Wild are kind of a grinded-out type team where they, you know, they can get to four goals, but it takes a lot of hammer and tonging to get there. But to get to try to keep pace with somebody scoring nine, I don't think that's going to happen. Thank you, sir. Appreciate it, Murphy. All right, thanks for having me, guys. All right, bye-bye. Brian Murphy, Pioneer Press, he's back on the Wild Beat. We're going to try to talk to him every uh, Wednesday about the Wild, sometimes in studio, sometimes when he's on the road via the phone. Let's take a break, come back. We're in the TCL Broadcast Studios. Maggie's going to join the show at 4 o'clock, holler at 5, Rich Gannon at 5.15. But up next, my buddy Jason Wilde, ESPN Wisconsin. What the hell is going on in Green Bay? Hopefully we'll find out. Mackie and Judd resume things following these messages. That's just about the most fantastic scheme I've heard to date. On 1500 ESPN. Are you ready? Live from the TCL Broadcast Studios. We are ready. Now back to Mackie and Judd. Ready! On 1500 ESPN. Hey, Winston, I'm sorry. Where is the Winston that has given us uh, illumination and information at past press conferences? Do we do something... That you're down on us again, but this was what last week it didn't go very well, and we want to talk about your guys, and I'm not quite sure what you want from us to make that happen. I can't help you. That uncomfortable conversation, it's dated a little bit now, but it becomes important again because that is the unmistakable voice of my good friend Jason Wildey of ESPN Wisconsin, who, who we talked to last week. Now that was, uh, tell us, explain that again to us, and then obviously it ties into events of the past few days, Jason Wildey. Uh, hi, Judd. How are um, you, sir? I had forgotten how long the awkward pause was there. It's marvelous. Um, that's, that's, uh, that's astonishing. Um, so I believe that is from minicamp, um, and he was the outside linebackers coach and the associate head coach of the Green Bay Packers, and he had been kind of curt and uh, truculent with the media, which uh, you guys know what truculent means, right? Yes. Recalcitrant yeah, well, as well. It, it, no, truculent, as Bob Euchre would tell you, if you let me use your truck, for a while, that would be a truck you lend. Um, <laughs> no, I did. Okay, that's good. I, I would never doubt your command of the. Sorry, English. I didn't mean to get sorry. in the way of that one. I'm, I'm sorry, Jason. My bad. Keep going. Sorry. <laughs> love it. Absolutely love it. Um, so he 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 has been mercurial with us uh, over the years. One day he'll be he'll provide incredible insight and elucidation, and then another day he would be like that, gruff and curt. And so, I, you know, that, that was the second time in a row he had been that way, so I asked him. And, yes, that has been a, uh, a punchline on the Packers beat now for a while. I can't help you. Well, uh, now he definitely won't be helping the Packers because yesterday Winston Moss, after posting that uh, on his Twitter account, insanecane 99 if you'd like to follow him, uh, that there needed to be more accountability and better leadership in the building. He is no longer in the building. Joe Philbin, the interim head coach, fired him 
yesterday evening, and I had a great conversation with somebody in the locker room today that I know really well, and uh, apparently Winston had not talked to Mike Pettin in two weeks. What? Um, Mike Pettin is the defensive coordinator. <laughs> what? So if that's the case, and this is someone who's, whose input I would certainly trust, um, you know, I had a, a few people jumping on me, and I saw I even made dead spin, which is usually not good news, um, you know, for, for suggesting that the tweet didn't get him fired. Well, no. Had it been, let's say it was uh, Packers offensive line coach James Campen who posted the exact same tweet. Okay. I don't think he would have gotten fired. I think he would have been called into the office, and Joe Philbin would have been like, what the, what the heck are you doing, man? But he didn't have a track record of erratic behavior. Winston Moss, besides that press conference and the tweet, some clearly erratic behavior and some uh, lack of communication with his own colleagues. And so, much like Mike McCarthy losing to the lowly Arizona Cardinals or Chile getting blown out by the Packers mm-hmm. were the last straws of their tenures, uh, I believe the tweet, while not in and of itself getting him fired, was clearly the last straw for him getting fired. So can you uh, can you give me the cliff notes of what is going on there, starting with, obviously, the embarrassing loss to the Cardinals on Sunday. Um, McCarthy, not surprisingly, is fired, but I think the timing is surprising. People now, it sounds like Mark Chamara, the former tight end for the Packers, is dumping on Rodgers. What, uh, what is the latest as far as the chaos going on in Green Bay? Yeah, I don't know what it was like, Judd, what your recollections are for when Chile got time left in the season. This is uncharted territory for me. I've never, this has never happened during my 22 years covering the team. Um, Aaron Rodgers said today, somebody asked him about Terry Bradshaw having said that they had a close-knit relationship and that every conversation they had, whether it was good or bad, ended with them hugging and them telling each other they loved each other. Did, I'm now, sorry, you cut, cut out for a second. This was with who? Who hugged? This was with Mike McCarthy. He said this to us about his relationship okay. with Mike McCarthy. Gotcha, all right. But that's how every conversation would end. I, I, I don't know. I mean, that's how all of our conversations end, but I, I don't know if every we're huggers. conversation probably ended. Yeah. yeah, you're a big hugger. Uh, you know uh, I love to hug. So, so there's, so there's, the, there, there's that component, and look, no one is going to convince anyone that Aaron Rodgers wasn't frustrated with the offense or frustrated with Mike McCarthy. I had two different players say to me earlier in the week, what does it tell you on third and ten on the opening series that we ran the ball? Doesn't that, sound like, doesn't that seem like somebody who's trying to get fired? And I said, I don't know if they're trying to get fired. But I had two different players who espoused that theory. Look, our friend Kevin Seifert from ESPN.com suggests that he was the first one that I saw suggest that this was actually the humane thing to do for Mike McCarthy, and this is actually better for him. Mm-hmm. I've seen other coach, I've seen coaches and other people disagree with that. I don't know. Like, I don't know if this is better or it's better to let him finish up the season. He's the first Packers coach in 99 years of this is their 100th season. Yep. He's the first Packers coach to ever be fired in season. That had never happened in the history of the team. So wow. that becomes part of his legacy. 
Do you think that that they did this uh, solely based on the embarrassment of the loss to Arizona, or was that just the tipping point of what was what seemed to be a a distancing of the relationship, probably years in the making between the quarterback and head coach? I think it's all those things. I mean, when when you play a game as flat as they did, I I had said before that game, I I, I saw no way they were going to lose, but I said if they somehow lost. Isn't this the kind of game that gets you fired if you have a, 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 a deep-pocketed, impulsive owner? Which there's plenty of those in the NFL. Yes, there but are. But even then, I thought, well, yeah, that's if you had an owner like that. But, A, they're not going to lose. They're at home uh, where they hadn't lost all year. Tied once, obviously. Mm-hmm. At home, hadn't lost all year there. Playing against the 2-9 and team with a first-year head coach, a rookie quarterback, that had an offense that ranked last in just about every meaningful category, uh, in the cold, in the snow, against a dome team from Arizona, and they still lost. So, yes, I can see how that is the straw that makes Mike McCarthy's back. But, um, look, they were not going to go on a playoff run. They are not equipped for that. The roster's not good enough. Uh, The offense isn't good enough. Uh, they may win their last four somehow with a new coach and new energy, but with Mike McCarthy as coach, they were not going to go on a run and make the playoffs. And so I think that was just the final straw. So, Jason, how close is this roster to being a serious contender again? I mean, are they just a couple of moves away this next offseason, or is this are they a little further away than people might think? Yeah, I think it all comes down to, Manny, what the what your margin for error is and how good of a draft you have. I mean, look, I've used a couple of comparisons in recent weeks about different things. Like, uh, for Aaron Rodgers, I've compared this situation to John Elway late in his career and the Broncos moving on from Dan Reeves and hiring Mike Shanahan, the young, new ideas, offensive-minded coach. I've compared Mike McCarthy to Andy Reid moving on from Philadelphia after a lot of success, but not enough, and going to Kansas City and being reborn. The comparison I would make with this roster would be the Packers have to hope that it's like the New Orleans Saints. The New Orleans Saints had back-to-back-to-back seven and nine seasons, and then they hit in that draft last year, and Kamara and the help they got on defense, they got a franchise tackle and Ryan Ramchick like they – they nailed their draft, and now look at where they are the second straight year. They're a, a contender to be the team that emerges from the NFC. So I don't think their roster is light years away, but they, don't, they would really have to have a very strong draft, and they can't miss on free agents. I mean, they're, they finally get into the free agent pool. Jimmy Graham's been inconsistent. Mo Wilkerson hasn't done much before he broke his ankle. And Tremont Williams is playing safety now. He hasn't had a big impact. They've got like six interceptions as a team. So they're far enough away that they don't have much margin for error when they start building their 2019 roster. So what's your best guess about what type of coach they're going to look for? And I guess almost just as importantly, who is going to be in charge of actually pulling the trigger on hiring this coach? Uh, Mark Murphy will hire the coach. He said uh, the general manager, Brian Gutekunst, will be uh, actively involved. I'm not sure we got a great answer on what that meant. That seems a little uh, backwards, Jason Wildey, to me. Well, but... I'll tell you what, 
I'll tell you what, Judd. I think back to uh, the good old days, and this will be the seven, second Kevin Seifert reference I'm going to make. This, do we credit him with the with the term triangle of authority? Yes. Was he the first one to coin that? He coined it. Um, yes. Yeah, you know, Packers fans made fun of the Vikings for that. They poked fun at their rivals to the West. And now the Packers have a triangle of authority. It, it doesn't It doesn't work, Jason. Go tell Mark Murphy yeah, right now. Right? This doesn't Go say, hey, I know this guy named Zolgad. For the most part, he's a buffoon, but it doesn't work. <laughs> well, he, um, he, I, I, he and I probably won't be chatting for a little while. I, I kind of went after him in the press conference on Monday. My question ended with, what makes you the most qualified person to choose the head coach? It's a fair question. Uh, it's fair. Well, and, and it was at the end of me saying, look, because he was very defensive about the structure. Okay. We all asked multiple questions about it. And I said, Mark, you, have, you understand why we're asking about the structure, right? I said, Ron Wolf wouldn't take this job the first time it was offered to him as GM because he didn't have full control over the football operation. Then he took it, had full control, hired Mike Holmgren, they won a Super Bowl. Ted Thompson comes in, hired, given full control of the football operation, hires Mike McCarthy, they won a foot. They won a Super Bowl. So the structure that was in place has worked. Why are you more qualified than Brian Gutekunst to pick the new head coach? And you know, of course, Brian Gutekunst is sitting there next to him, so it was not exactly uh, ideal. But nevertheless, he went on this big spiel about how he, you know, he's been around football his life. He played obviously for the Redskins. He uh, was a college administrator for 17 years. He worked on the NFLPA. Uh, committee, and I wanted to say, you know, you've never hired an NFL head coach before. Like, you got this job, right. and it was McCarthy and Thompson. Yep. So, uh, you know, hiring Pat Fitzgerald uh, at Northwestern after his predecessor suddenly and tragically, Randy Walker, passes away that summer, I'm not sure that that qualifies you to hire the next coach of the Green Bay Packers, but... Uh, that is the very long answer to your very short question of who will decide. So who is on the list, do, do you think, and are, are they going to try to get a guy that skews offense to help Aaron out, or are they going to try and get a guy to fix the defense? I think they're going to try to do what the Bears did, okay. which is hire a young, offensive-minded, new idea guy and then throw back up the Brinks truck to their defensive coordinator like the Bears did with Vic Fangio and try and keep Mike Patton and say, look, you could be the head coach of the defense. Um, I think what would be really interesting, because Joe Philbin is beloved in that locker room, uh, especially by players who were here for his first tenure, um, it would be really interesting if they went on a four-game run and won all those games and Rodgers played like Rodgers and their offense was super productive, which it hasn't been all year. Mm -hmm. I would really be curious to see what that would do. Thank you, Jason Wildey. Appreciate the time as always. Take care. I appreciate I appreciate the Packers giving me an excuse to talk to you, Joe. Thanks. All right. Stay sane. Bye-bye. Jason Wildey does a great job. Check him out. ESPN Wisconsin also uh, plenty of radio work on the ESPN affiliate there. Yes, Manny Hill. Well, you know what's interesting, too, about the last point Jason made with, with Joe Philbin. I mean, that 15-1 and year they had, wasn't didn't that give get Joe Philbin a head coaching job yeah. with the Dolphins. And it worked. They went 15-1, and one, and historic it offense. Absolutely. Rogers got the MVP. It was putrid. And... He's a coordinator. Yeah. That's his. He's not. He might be beloved by some veteran players in that locker room, but I can guarantee you that as more new players filter in, he would lose them. It's uh, But 
If you're a Viking fan, what Jason said should thrill you. If um, yeah. Mark Murphy, because I covered that, that team when Kevin Harlan's dad, Bob, was president of the Packers. Mm-hmm. And Bob was as classy and smart, really, really sharp, sharp as could be. And he, as far as I know, never got involved. Like he hired, they they transitioned um, to uh, Mike Sherman, which didn't work as GM. But mm-hmm. then he he hired Ted. And if you recall, Ted was good at first. Mm-hmm. But the, But most importantly, he didn't fancy himself a football expert. If the Packers are truly going to go with, hey, the GM's here to help out the president who's going to make a lot of big decisions. He put smart football people in place yes. and, and step back but and if said, you're, you guys do this. If you're a Viking fan, if this if this comes to fruition and they go with, let's say, three or four people at Lambeau making decisions, you should be thrilled. Why, It'll sabotage them. Why did they, why did they hire Brian Gutekunst? If he's not going to be able to Cause he's gonna do be, anything. Because he's going to be the puppet for Murphy. I mean, that's why because he's been man. he's been there forever. Brian's been uh, he was a scout. He he yeah. was he was in now now the original talk years ago was Elliot Wolf was going to get that job, Ron's kid, mm-hmm. and he worked in the Packers front office for a long long time, and he's now in Cleveland, which is why McCarthy's being tied to Cleveland. So last thing, play the Winston Moss Jason thing one more time because with the context up, now, like, can you? Because with the context now, it's fantastic. Yeah, I'll have to. Uh, I'll have to. We'll, 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 come back and do it? Yeah, let's come back. Okay, because it, yeah. it's so good. All right, take a break, come back. Don't go anywhere. More Mackie and Judd coming up next. Oh, that's just what they'll be expecting us to do. On 1500 ESPN. Mackie and Judd are back. Start churning butter and put on your church shoes, little sister, because we're about to blast off. On 1500 ESPN. All right, quick check on your traffic here in the TCL Broadcast Studios. 94 eastbound. we got a crash in Minneapolis between 3rd Avenue and 65. That's uh, right there near the uh, Lowry Tunnel. That's always a tricky area. Uh, four extra minutes there in your commute. And also 52 northbound in St. Paul between Plato Boulevard and 94. Uh, we got a crash there. I uh, figure about an extra three minutes in that area. Hey, Winston, I'm sorry, where is the Winston that has given us uh, illumination and information in past press conferences? Do we do something that you're down on us again? But this was what, last week it didn't go very well, and we want to talk about your guys, and I'm not quite sure what you want from us to make that happen. Wait for it. I can't help you. <laughs> that, nine seconds. Okay, so nine seconds. And Jason said that that was mini camp, correct? Yes. And then I guess Winston Moss was the one assistant coach that I know you're going to be shocked by this, Manny Hill. The Packers elected to have not talked during the course of the season. No availability <laughs> Gee, for Winston I Moss. Why. No availability. Uh, so we have our uh, 1500 ESPN Twitter polls at work now. Actually, let's go to yesterday's polls because we ran three of those during the course of the show. Uh, the first one was, how many games would this Wolves team, so the current Wolves team that beat Houston a couple nights ago, mm-hmm. have won in last year's playoff se- uh, series against that Rockets team? So we're talking the 2018-19 Wolves against the 2017-18 Rockets. 34% say it would have been the same one game. 36% won out two uh, games instead of just one game. 16% say three, and 14% say they that this Wolves team would beat the Rockets in a playoff series, which I'm not buying. Mm-hmm. Second poll, most unlikable Wolves player in franchise history. This was after, of course, um, J.R. Ryder was a complete, what can I say on the radio? Can I say jackass? 
Yes. Okay, he was a... Royce, he said, used that word several times. He was a jackass to reporters trying to talk to him when he came back for the 30th season anniversary of the Wolves. So, I mean, he's a has-been as a player. (laughs) Had no reason to be a jackass, and yet he was. Most unlikable Wolves player in franchise history. Jonathan Harrison gave us four choices. 59% Jimmy Butler. Recency bias, I say. 23% say Christian Leitner, who I voted for and firmly believe should win. 11% say Stefan Marbury, who I think should be fourth on the list. 7% said J.R. Ryder. I think J.R. should have at least been third. La- yeah. Last poll, the controversial one yesterday. Uh, ar- argument during the 3 o'clock hour that uh, re- at real Danny Cunningham, D. Cunningham and I got into, who's a better-looking guy, Cliff Kingsbury or Sean McVay? Kingsbury, of course, was a head coach until he was just fired, and now he's going to be the offensive coordinator for USC, Manny Hill. Mm-hmm. And uh, McVay, of course, is a very successful young coach of the Los Angeles Rams, so they're going to be sharing a city or area, I guess. 52%, only 52% say Kingsbury, 48% say Sean McVay. You're absolutely crazy. And then, Jonathan, what is our poll for today? Can you uh, can you get that one pulled up and give us today's poll that people can go vote on right now? Yep, it is. Who started the halftime players talk that helped spark the win over Houston on Monday? Currently, 44% say Robert Covington sparked it. 22% say Derrick Rose. And it's a tie for third so at mean. 17% with Cat and 17% with Andrew Wiggins. Ha, 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 ha. The snark is so the snark, Jonathan Harrison, so unnecessary. The right amount of snark. I vote Covington. I vote Rocco. Forty four percent with me. We'll take a break. Come back. Mackie joins the show Uh, next. Don't forget before we're done to collar at five o'clock. Rich Gannon at five fifteen. Jace Frederick talking wolves from the Pioneer Press at four thirty. Don't go anywhere. More Mackie and Judd coming up next. Oakley Oakley on fifteen hundred ESPN. Venture X from Capital One is the travel card for people always asking, Where next? You earn 10x miles on hotels and rental cars and 5x miles on flights booked through Capital One Travel and 2x miles on everything else you buy with Venture X. Plus, receive premium travel benefits like access to over 1,300 airport lounges. The Venture X card from Capital One. What's in your wallet? Terms apply. See CapitalOne.com for details. Did you know Nissan EVs have traveled 8 billion miles? Just a quick trip to Pluto and back. And what did we learn along the way? Well, that an EV can take on the world, like the Nissan LEAF. It can move racing forward and take your breath away, like the all-new Nissan Aria. We learned to make EVs that electrify. 8 billion miles driven by LEAF owners globally since 2010. Aria not yet available for purchase. Expected availability late fall. Subject to change.